Now we're turning for our Scripture reading to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1. If you're using… it's a generational thing. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1186, and if you're using the Church Bible, it's also on page 1186. And while you're turning there, let me uh, commend again to you Jeremiah Burroughs, Learning to be Happy, uh, which I haven't read, which means my commendation comes completely without prejudice, except I have read the longer version, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, uh, and you just need to be out in the street and listen to people to realize what a rare jewel uh, any kind of contentment is, and Christian contentment uh, is a wonderful grace. Uh, So, let me encourage you to get that, and uh, then when you grow up, you can can read the big boys and girls version, uh, which is is also in paperback, but from a different publisher. Now, last couple of Sunday nights, we have been dipping into uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, and we've been looking at the first chapter from two different angles. Uh, First of all, by probing the question, uh, how did these Thessalonians become Christians? Uh, and uh, we said then it's a great question to, to ask people when you sit beside a stranger in a church, how did, how did, what's your journey here? And then uh, last week uh, we were looking at uh, the kind of church that the Thessalonians were because Paul says in chapter 1 that they were what I called a typical church. That is to say, they were a a tupos, a type. Uh, They were a model of what it means to be a church. And now we're turning to look at these same verses this morning. You don't need to have heard either of the other two sermons, I hope, to make sense of the third. We're going to look at the same verses from now a third angle. So, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned 
to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is one of those interesting moments in the New Testament where we have more than one description of what happened. Uh, Paul describes here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 the experience he had when he preached the gospel there. And Luke, the author of the Acts of the Apostles, describes in Acts chapter 17, uh, as it were, from the outside what actually happened. And on either account, uh, you would have to conclude that something extraordinary happened. God came to these Thessalonians through the ministry, through the preaching of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And the result was that Paul, although he was only there for a few weeks, perhaps a couple of months, Paul had a very special love for this church. He tells us in chapter 2 and verse 20 that this church was his glory and joy. Uh, there would be a little uh, there would be a little model of the Thessalonian church on the crown he would be given in heaven. This was his conviction that God had come in a very special way, an unusual way, so much so that you get the sense that Paul himself felt that when he was preaching and as they were responding, he was, he was almost a spectator. He was the mouthpiece. But what he saw happening among these people was not the result merely of his human words. It was the result of the power of God. It was the result of the unction of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways in which that was rather obvious, as Acts chapter 17 tells us, is the response that was made to his preaching. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 17 that when Christ was proclaimed, some of them were persuaded a great many of the devout Greeks became believers, and not a few of the leading women. So, people crowded into the kingdom of God through the preaching of Paul and his companions. That didn't always happen. And not only so, it's very interesting that in Luke's account in Acts chapter 17, he gives much more space to the opposition that this aroused. Uh, he, he speaks about them coming in a couple of verses. He describes Paul's preaching in a verse, but then he describes the people's conversion, but then he spends most of the time describing the opposition. The opposition was so immense that Paul had to leave the city. Not only were they content with that, the people who opposed the preaching of the gospel, and the message of Jesus Christ. But when Paul went on to Berea, the same people hired a bus and drove to Berea and did exactly the same thing. 
It, it, it wasn't just that they, they had a kind of neutral kind of distaste for what had happened. They were, they were aroused in a way they had never been before. These very respectable citizens of Thessalonica, and they were outraged by the message that Paul had preached. Just as, in a sense, we often are conscious today, and David Ellis uh, alluded to this essentially in prayer, uh, that you can talk about anything in the workplace, but as, as soon as the name of Jesus is mentioned, it, it isn't just that people neutrally say to you, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather you, you didn't talk about your religion here. They are outraged, and their hearts are exposed. And it was this marvelous phenomenon that Paul had witnessed, men and women from all classes, Jews and Gentiles, pressing into the kingdom of God. And as often happens in these situations of awakening, opposition being aroused, deep hostility, and an attempt made to destroy the gospel. And it's a thrilling narrative to read for our own times because we, as David again was praying this morning without any, I don't think he even knew what the sermon was going to be on, we are living in what for the church, what for the gospel appear to be calamitous times. I happened to look up the statistics of membership in the National Church, the Church of Scotland. 1965, one and a quarter million. 2015, 350,000. And if you project forward the loss of 16,000 members a year, then by the time you're in the middle of the century, the national church <clears throat> will be no more. Gone from this massively influential community that, alas, so often lacked the gospel and therefore drew very little hostility to this shrinking community that has for all that may think the opposite, no impact to speak of on our nation whatsoever. 350,000 members, how many of them are sitting in the kind of seats you're sitting in this morning? That 350,000 is probably a considerable exaggeration. And it raises for, the, for us the question, so do we lose hope? It raises for us the question, with all the implements we have at our disposal in technological terms, in media terms, in social communication terms, we would be foolish if we thought that any of those things can break into the contemporary situation and find a response that's anything more at best of relative indifference in the hearts of most people. And in that sense, no different from the city of Thessalonica around 49 AD when Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, just three men, walked into town 
and began to preach the gospel. And there took place what we would nowadays call an awakening. And that's the angle I want us to look at this passage from yet again. What, what happened here? What is an awakening? Well, the first thing that Paul himself notices in describing the events is that the gospel was preached by him in unusual power. Our gospel, he says, verse 5, came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And later on in verse 8, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, etc., but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. This is what happens in an awakening. The word of God preached, which is His ordinary means of building up the church, is preached by the same people, by the same instruments, except that God Himself does something unusual through that preaching. It's the same word. It may even be the same preacher. It may be the same people who are listening. But God comes and does something through His Word. And the history of the Christian church is punctuated by these seasons of revival or awakening when the ordinary means of God's blessing His people, He chooses to use in extraordinary ways. Now, I recognize, as some of you may well know, that there are people who share our own theological convictions who deny this and will say, well, every time the Word of God is preached, the Holy Spirit attends the preaching of the Word. That's absolutely true. But unless this be true, when large numbers of people are converted, unless you want to attribute that to the quality of the preacher or to the quality of the hearer, you've got to attribute that to an unusual working of the Spirit of God. Yes, God's Spirit is always at work when His Word is preached. His Word will not return to Him void. But the Holy Spirit does not make His presence sensed or the impact of His Word felt in the same way on every occasion. And you see that already in the in the Acts of the Apostles. I wonder how many sermons Simon Peter preached after the day of Pentecost. But we don't have any record after the day of Pentecost of 3,000 people being converted through his preaching. What's the explanation? Well, Peter preached his best sermon on the day of Pentecost. Well, he probably did preach his best sermon on the day of Pentecost. Because people, people who listened, they were just a superior kind of person. No, they were actually cut to the heart. Their, their sinfulness was exposed. What's the explanation? The explanation, as the Acts of the Apostles will say on more than one occasion, is that God comes and the power of the Holy Spirit fills the preacher of the gospel 
and large numbers of people are brought to faith in Christ. That's not a strange idea to us. I don't just mean in this church, I mean in this room. I'm sure some of you, like me, sometimes lean against the wall and say, is there no recording from 1839 of what happened in this room? And, And many of you know the story. The first minister of this church, Robert Murray McChain, came to it at the age of 23. 23. Ministered for just under three years, was unwell, was sent in a deputation to see the condition of the Jews all the way through Europe to Palestine. And uh, apparently, quite privately, uh, he made the decision who was going to serve as the interim minister when he was gone for six months. And he wrote to a man who was 23 years old. My guess is it's a fairly rare thing nowadays for anyone to graduate from the seminary who's only 23 years old. I wouldn't be surprised at the average age of students in the seminaries, more than 23. And people were surprised at his choice. And when he came and preached here the first Sunday, uh, his brother recorded there were people who told him that they had inwardly trembled when they saw him get into the pulpit because he was, he was entering into the ministry of someone who had been in a short period of time greatly revered for the grace and power of his preaching. And uh, the man's name, William Chalmers Burns, he, he went to his dad's church in Cosyth a couple of months later. He preached, and there was such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that he got, he got kind of stuck in Cosyth. And then when he came back here in the summer, uh, he, he spoke at the end of the Thursday night prayer meeting, because people were were anxious. It had, it had sounded out from Cosyth to Dundee, the reception the gospel had had. Miners were holding prayer meetings at lunchtime down the pit head. And so he told a little of the story. He, he suggested if there were any folks in the church who sensed they needed the Holy Spirit to work in them, to bring them to Christ, that they should wait behind and and he would address them. He did address them. And the floodgates opened. A hundred or so people who had waited behind just overcome with a sense of their need, crying. And from that night onwards, for months on end, uh, there, there, was this, there was this harvest of conversion. Now, what was the explanation well, he was 23 years old. That's the explanation. What we need is a 23-year-old preacher. If our beloved David Robertson has privately made an arrangement with some 23-year-old in the country to serve as the interim in our forthcoming vacancy, I think there will be just a little alarm in the congregation. A 23-year-old. Well, you might say he was 24 by the time he came here, yeah. So, what was the explanation? 
It's a very humbling explanation. It was, it was humbling to Robert Murray McShane, but he had actually he had anticipated it and prayed for it, that in his absence there would be a new sense of God's presence. Friends, God should not go about using 23-year-olds when there are 43-year-olds and 53-year-olds and 63-year-olds about. It's not the right way to do things in church. But that's what God was pleased to do. And it's very interesting, I think, anyway, if you read the sermons, there are, there are records of the sermons Burns preached, as there are many records of the sermons Robert Murray McShane preached. And most of you know he died when he was 29. He's buried just out there. You read those sermons, and I think you are bound to come to the conclusion these are not the kind of sermons a 23 or 4 or even a 29-year-old man could preach today. Some of them without people feeling, you arrogant so-and-so, who do you think you are? So, what's the explanation? The explanation lies in the way God used His ordinary means in an extraordinary way. And this is what Paul is describing here. The gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, we taste some of that, don't we? We, we listen to preaching, and it seems to us it's words, words, words. But then there is a preaching that, that in which the words do something because God is pleased to do something through those words. And in this occasion, God was pleased to do something extraordinary through those words. There was, as Calvin says about uh, this visit to Thessalonica, there was a remarkable display of God's power. So, this is what happened when the gospel was preached by Paul with power. But I want us to think about this, um, that the gospel also affected very radical conversions. Um, I remember a name some of you will remember who've been in the free church forever. I remember David Patterson saying to me about somebody He's a very decided Christian. He's a very decided Christian. And I kind of wanted to pull uh, David Patterson's leg a bit. Are there any Christians who aren't very decided? But y you, would, you would understand what he meant. That, that this was somebody that the, the gospel ran right through. That, that their commitment to Jesus Christ was evident for all to see. And that, of course, because they had experienced a radical conversion. The point, however, is there is no conversion that isn't radical. Some conversions are more dramatic on the outside than others, granted. But every conversion, by definition, is a radical conversion. 
And Paul gives a marvelous illustration here among the Thessalonians of what that actually looks like. They received the Word of God with joy, he says. That's a marvelous statement. You received, this is the middle of verse 6, you received the Word in much affliction because there was so much pressure and persecution, but you received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's an interesting combination, isn't it? It's actually a great encouragement to know that's how it works. Great affliction, but also this great joy from the Holy Spirit. What's the explanation for the joy? The explanation for the joy is that the burden of your guilt has rolled off your shoulders down into the empty tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's actually the function of our confession of sin. Um, But it's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy for that part in our service just to become words and not power. For us to think that the the, the word of gospel pardon is just, you know, more words in the service. Somebody's put them into the order of service. But you see, when the Holy Spirit comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, the discovery that your sins have been forgiven brings the sweetest joy in the world. It sets you free but you see, there's something combined with that that, that uh, often, we, often we don't see the connection between the two. The sweetness of joy is related to the radical nature of our repentance. He says, you turned to God. This is verse 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. Now, you'll notice there are three verbs there. The first verb is turn, and it means, it means turn round. Um, when we were in Glasgow one Sunday night, I was, I was doing 70 down the motorway to go to church for the evening service, and going up the other side of the motorway, I noticed a, a personalized number plate on a car that I recognized because there was only one man in the church as far as I knew who had a personalized number plate, and he was going at the same speed in the opposite direction. So we're passing one another at somewhere over 100 miles an hour. And I hypocritically, pharisaically thought to myself, because this was one of our most faithful elders, where on earth is he going instead of going to church? And then I realized if I continued on my path, I would end up in air. I was heading entirely in the wrong direction, and it never crossed my mind until somebody heading in the right direction crossed my path. And that's how it is, isn't it? We go on foolishly, mindlessly, believing we're on the right path, thinking that we can see when our heart is a one great blind spot. And then the truth came, the gospel came, Christ was proclaimed, and there was this radical turnaround 
from their idols, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. That was what happened to them. And the result was very beautiful. It was, he says, that they came to serve. It, it's, it's the verb that we associate with the idea of slavery. They became the happy bond servants of the living and true God. And the third verb that's used, uh, they, they waited for His Son from heaven. Uh, what does that mean? It, it meant that, that Jesus was the one with whom they were entirely taken up. They were they were looking forward to His coming again in majesty and power. But for the moment, they were, they were resting in Him, trusting in Him. And that's what it means to be converted. Um, without, without a measure of these three verbs, we haven't ever really been converted. Turning from our idols the happy service of the Lord Jesus Christ, and our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus who is at the right hand of the throne of God as the living Savior who is just the same today as He was yesterday as we read about Him in the Gospels and will be so forever. Our hearts are taken up with Him. And when this happened in large numbers, as apparently it did among these Thessalonians, uh, we know that God, and Paul knew more importantly, that God was at work in this special way. And the effect? Well, the effect is that the gospel then spreads far and wide through the Spirit. The preaching of the gospel comes in the power of the Spirit Radical conversion is effected by the ministry of the Spirit, and then the gospel spreads far and wide through the work of the Spirit. Not only, verse 8, has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. As, you know, for all practical purposes, that's two countries, friends. That's Scotland. That's like something happening in Dundee that everybody in Scotland is talking about. And uh, that's what invariably happens when God comes, visits His people, brings people into His kingdom, creates a, a model church, and shows the gospel through His servants. Occasionally, I think I've seen that in the case of an individual. God working in an individual in such a powerful way that people in other towns somehow or another have heard by word of mouth and ask, is it true what has happened? And what takes place in, the, in these awakenings when God's people are humbled in the dust but because they've been humbled in the dust, they find the sweetness of the forgiveness of their sins in a gloriously new way is somehow or another in the mysterious providence of God, non-believers start talking about what has happened to believers. 
And in that sense, non-believers become the highway along which the word of the gospel passes. And with us simply as spectators, yes, instruments serving the Lord Jesus, but ordinary men and women become used in this extraordinary way, and God gains the glory for Himself. And in particular, verse 7, this church that had experienced this awakening became a tupos, a model of what a church that is centered on God, filled with the Spirit, trusting in Jesus Christ, actually becomes. And this should be an encouragement to us, should be an encouragement to us to pray that God would do this kind of thing again, should be an encouragement to us because we are all plagued with the notion that we are normal and our church life is normal. And we need to go to a place where we discover that we're not as normal as we thought, that that we are not as mature as we imagined, that we're not as filled with the Spirit as we assumed, and that the power of God is not present among us the way it might be present. And this should be a great encouragement to us. In, in as, as we've been thinking again in prayer, as David led us in prayer about the, the times in which we live are not propitious for the Christian gospel. I was in the company of someone I would describe as a senior Christian statesman last week, and he said a very interesting thing. God is in Brexit, he said. God is in Brexit. The question is, what's God doing in Brexit? God is in Brexit confounding the nations. Have you noticed what the default is, incidentally? Brackets, this is not a political statement. Have you noticed what the default is, even among us as Christians? It's to say this or that about our politicians. And then we stand back and we think, I'm, I'm, just, I'm talking about this as though there was no Bible as though there was no Holy Spirit, as though Christ had never come, as though there was no gospel, because I'm thinking about it entirely from the human point of view. But we are in a Psalm 2 day, aren't we? The nations rage against the Lord and His anointed. But what does the Bible tell us again and again about such days? God confounds their plans. God confounds their plans. And for myself, I think we've a lot lower to go. I think we've a, we have a lot more exposure of the whirlwind that our winds have created. And then it may be in God's mercy that He will use our sense of inadequacy and bankruptcy. You don't hear any politician, at least in public, standing up in parliament and saying, honorable members, 
we need to bow down before God and ask Him to have mercy upon us, to give us wisdom, to hear our cries for salvation, because we lack the wit and the power. We are confounded. Our arrogance, which stinks to high heaven, is a stench in His nostrils. But may He in wrath remember mercy. And here were these Thessalonians. And under the surface, eh, under the surface, they were full of all kinds of Scottish, Scottish people and English people and Welsh people. And if you're Irish, I'm not going to leave you out, or Greek, or American, or wherever you're from. All on the surface is we know how to do things. But then the gospel comes, and there is outrage. And that's our world today, isn't it? The gospel comes, and there is outrage. What do we need? If this is anything to go by, if God comes, the first thing that will happen will be there will be even more outrage, which is why I'm always a little nervous when I hear anyone pray, Lord, send a revival and begin with me. But what an encouragement to know God is able to do this. What a challenge if the truth is we have not because we ask not. And what a way this marvelous passage is of showing us our real need and of, of bringing us to this, to learn to pray that God would raise up new farmers who are able to plow the field, new farmers that are able to scatter the seed, and are so given over to the Lord, such decided believers, that God will be pleased to use their, their weakness. What a thing it would be if a 23-year-old came behind this lectern and this number of people, which is about the same number of people who waited behind that Thursday night to listen to William Chalmers Burns, found ourselves in floods of tears because of our need. And He's able to do that. But will we be willing in the day of His power? That's maybe the question. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, in what diverse ways Your Word comes to us, we, we read that it is living and active, um, and we love to have it preached and expounded to us. But by Your Holy Spirit, Your Word is living um, and comes from behind the lectern and starts moving through the seats and humbling us in our terrible arrogance 
and helping us to see our insufficiency, melting our hearts, showing us our sin, bringing us to tears because of what we are that we have so carefully hidden from one another. We pray, our God, that you would encourage us uh, to believe that you are not bound by the circumstances of our time, that you would give us faith to believe that you are always at work, that you are also a God who in wrath is willing to remember mercy. And therefore, we pray on as we've already been led in prayer that you would have mercy upon our nation and mercy upon the church and send your word and the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction to bring men and women and boys and girls to seriousness of heart, conviction of sin, delight in forgiveness, and decided discipleship of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've responded to the Word of God in prayer, so we also